Hello and welcome to this edition of the Sobremesa podcast with me, your host, Alan McGuire. Today I'm joined by Tobias Buck. He is the author of After the Fall, Crisis Recovery and the Making of a New Spain. Uh, Tobias was the Financial Times foreign correspondent in Madrid or Spain in December 2012 and 2017. He's currently the managing editor of the Financial Times, and he's uh, agreed to do this interview in the middle of trying to move his whole family from Berlin back to the UK in the middle of this coronavirus pandemic. So thank you very much for joining me, Tobias. Uh, Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Okay, so your book covers, uh, I mean, it's quite an interesting take. I've read the entirety of it. I read the first edition, so... There has been an updated edition since, but the edition that I read was the hardback back in July uh, 2019. Um, and your book covers the the aftermath of uh, the housing crisis, the, the collapse of like a third of Spain's banking system or like a large chunk of Spain's banking system, soaring debt and, and rising unemployment. Um, so... I understand you had prior connections to Spain, um, but how was it moving to Madrid during that time? You know, what did it feel like? Um, And was it difficult to get a grasp on the national and regional politics of the time that was in complete disarray? Well, it's it's always difficult to arrive in in a new country as a foreign correspondent. I mean, Spain was my sort of third foreign posting after being Brussels correspondent and then Middle East correspondent based in Jerusalem. And it was a lot easier arriving in Spain than it was in some of the previous postings for the simple reason that my wife is Spanish. And so I uh, sort of inherited, so to speak, a, a large Spanish family, a large circle of Spanish friends. And so I, I kind of, this this thing that is always quite difficult for a foreign correspondent that is Sort of beyond the politics and the economics, what are people actually talking about? What are they you know, watching on television? What are they listening to? Um, that that was sort of quite easy to unlock in the case of Spain. And then, as you as you probably know yourself, um, working in Spain, being a journalist in Spain, is, is sort of quite a quite a fun, easy thing to do anyway, because Spaniards love talking and sharing stories and um, you know, you, you very rarely hear a no comment uh, from anyone in Spain. So, so on the journalistic side, it was, um, it was an, an, and it went on to be an enormous pleasure working in Spain. Um, but of course, it was a, it was a terrible um, time to, to arrive in Spain from an economic and social point of view. As you um, just said, I mean, I arrived in December 2012. And I think, as, as I say in my book, it was sort of just in time to celebrate the bleakest Christmas um, uh, the country had seen in a, in a generation. And I mean, the crisis was just so visible and so visceral, and you saw it every day on the street. You saw, you know, the lines outside soup kitchens. You could sort of, you know, I had a, I, I, I was very lucky that I could walk to my office in the morning and through the center of Madrid and I passed dozens and dozens of shops and sort of it felt like almost every a new one would close down or a new bar would be boarded up and 
it was um it was it was a very it was just a terrible economic situation and it affected everyone um even if the older generation had safe jobs and had their mortgages paid off but then you know more likely than not they had um their kids moving back in with them or they saw their kids move abroad to find jobs in germany or the uk um so so yeah it was a it was a very tough time and um one thing that i think is really interesting in your book and and i i congratulate you for being able to unwind it uh was the corruption scandals that came came with so you know there was the economic crisis um but there was also a, a crisis of 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 the trust in politics trust in politicians and and a, a whole array of uh corruption scandals that i think in your book you sort of center around valencia um which is a very uh, i think it was one of the hearts was the heart of the corruption scandals how was it for you trying to you know as a as a brit that it as a brit um but also as a foreign correspondent that um that had been in several other countries how was it trying to get through all of the 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 difficulties and the and the the complexities of the corruption scandal yeah that that was indeed a great challenge and i'm i'm not sure i i ever really um um mastered the 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 full details of some of these truly sort of byzantine scandals especially the ones involving um senior but also local pp uh politicians um and i obviously for the for the purpose of what my readers are interested in i mean they you know readers outside spain weren't that terribly interested in kind of um understanding every little detail of these scandals i think for most spaniards kind of lost track of who exactly had given what kickback to whom and for what and in what region um but i think what i was left with uh, is just this overwhelming impression and I, well, i think what what spaniards were left with was just this overwhelming impression that politics as a whole was corrupt because you also had scandals of course i mean it was you know most of the heat was on the pp and quite rightly but you also had you know really pretty appalling scandals uh, involving other parties be it in Catalonia or be it in in Andalusia uh, where the socialists had obviously governed for decades and and bad practices had set in um and so i i i decided both in my reporting for the paper but also in the book to just try and pick you know one place and and i think valencia did did sort of become the emblematic place of corruption um where you know there was such a strange and toxic nexus of banking interests business interests political interests uh there was an unbelievable waste of public resources i mean you go to valencia uh, and even today you sort of see almost um almost like sort of some site of ancient ruins the sort of remnants of the of the boom years with the Formula 1 racing track with an unused massive second football uh ground uh with this uh, gigantic city of arts and sciences which uh you know is is lovely to visit but uh, you, you do wonder how a sort of medium-sized city could afford 
spending and architecture on that level. And of course, the truth is they couldn't afford it. And um, uh, Valencia, the city and Valencia, the region, um, just suffered the worst uh, hangover, I think, of the crisis, both in a political sense with so many senior politicians being taken to court and quite a few of them ultimately ending up in jail, but also in terms of the of the economic losses. And um, so, so that's how I sort of try to, to bring the story alive and to talk uh, you know, to the people who were actually charged with clearing up this this mess. And uh, I haven't been back to, to Valencia for a while, but uh, I'm, I'm sure they're still uh, clearing up a lot of the broken plates, as they as they said, um, of the of the boom years and the and the and the black years of corruption there. Yeah, and 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 uh, one of the big things that came out of this, um, I suppose. You know distrust and and um uh was the was podemos uh in a sense because they sort of they not only were they sort of out riding the wave out of the the 15m but they were also um against the political caste as they said uh and, and in your book you i mean obviously through being the the um the foreign correspondent for the Financial Times, a very well-respected global newspaper. Uh, you you got to meet several, you know, high-ranking politicians, and uh, in your book, I think it's quite an interesting way that you portray Podemos. You know, you sort of talk about meeting Pablo Iglesias in a cafe, and you know how people in the UK are referring to him as the uh, the professor with the ponytail. I think it is. Um, and um, you sort of talk about the, the beginnings of Podemos and, and their internal battles as well. So um, um, Erejon, who was like the number two, and Pablo Iglesias, who was sort of more the central figurehead of Podemos, you talk about their internal struggles. Um, and you also talk a lot about their theory, which was, um, for me, quite interesting that that would be in sort of a book more based around well, uh, that your book was based on, it was quite interesting to see that that you put that theory in there. Why did you think it was important to put the, like, the theory of agitation and their political theory into it? And how was it sort of getting into that um, newly, newly formed world of Podemos, um, trying to uncover the, you know, the arguments between these sort of, you know, these leftists about how best to run a campaign against to giant mm. uh, political parties. Yeah, I mean, they, they, it was a fascinating tale. I think all, all of us correspondents at the time, and uh, but also obviously the, the Spanish journalists, we, we all became fascinated by Podemos because, you know, I think we're, we're over the past five years we've become much more used to sort of upstart parties arriving on the scene and 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 sort of um, being successful. Uh, it's become a much more fragmented and, and, and sort of doggy dog political world, not just in Spain but um, but around the world. But this was very new at the time. I mean, the the the, the, the Spanish party system had been really very stable for many decades, and so for a newcomer to arrive was kind of quite an exciting thing in itself. But also the way they talked and looked and their the ambience they came from was so different from from that of the traditional Spanish parties and um, 
And it was also in the beginning actually quite easy to get hold of them. I mean, I remember that, I mean, they were obviously um, founded, if my memory serves me right, in January 2014. I, I hope I'm not getting my, my year wrong now. And, and they quite quickly started courting the foreign press. And I think there was a, there was a sort of a briefing at the Foreign Press Association that was attended by perhaps four or five foreign correspondents. I'm ashamed to say I was not one of them because I didn't really um, think this would um, amount to much. And then, and then suddenly they just kept rising and rising and rising. But they always remained quite open, at least in the first couple of years, to talking to foreign correspondents. And, um, and uh, I, I used to talk to their leaders on a, on a fairly regular basis and uh, your point about the theory is 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 a good one because I mean that you, you couldn't really avoid writing about the political theories that sort of animated their their um, their existence uh, because they would never stop talking about them I mean you know if you had a sit down with with uh, with Iglesias it's, you know, it's, you know you'd be pretty sure that the name Gramsci would kind of fall quite quite quickly and again, this is not my natural habitat, but obviously I did try and um, read my way into this um, a little bit. And, and they certainly were um, they certainly were quite convinced that it was not least their their knowledge and their familiarity around um, sort of progressive academic. Uh, writing and theories that that help them um and the the idea that there has to be a sort of populism from the left um and that there has to be a very clear break with the establishment that some of their goals were sort of quite classic left-wing goals but they went about achieving them in a, in a very different way and i think one of the examples i give is at least in the early years, their their rhetoric around the Catholic Church and the royal family, which of course I think traditionally have been, you know, prime targets for any self-respecting Spanish left winger, and they they took a conscious decision that they didn't want to harp on about <clears throat> the evils of the Catholic Church and the evils of the royal family, because they realised that if they wanted to build a a broad social movement. They couldn't fall into this trap of being identified right away as these kind of very avant-garde um, leftists, and so that was just one example of where their the writing that had you know in, influenced them was actually played a real role in shaping their approach to, to 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 politics. And also, I think it was a sign of their ambition. I mean, they wanted to break out of this you know five to ten percent left you know far left ghetto and initially of course they did succeed i mean they 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 achieved unbelievable polling results um but have obviously since fallen fallen back to earth somewhat but that that was a very that, that was a, a really i mean you know obviously we're you know we're, we're in the business of news so everything that is new is is kind of exciting and this was genuinely new not just type of movement, the type of political leader, the type of rhetoric and even aesthetics they employed, but um, but also the sheer the, the sheer fact of a of a sort of upstart party going from zero to twenty percent in the space of 
12 months or so. Mm. Yeah, and that, that's very interesting. And uh, one of my favourite chapters, and, and it's I think it was, for me, uh, the most uh, illuminating, I think, or the most informative part of, of the book was your portrait of Rahoy, which uh, mm. I think not only gives you a, an image of, you know, how he was as a person, but also what type of politician he was. Um, and I sort of got the feeling that he was like a sort of traditional technocrat, sort of centre-right politician in a time of absolute upheaval and crisis. Um, and, you know, that was the sort, he, you know, it comes across in your book as he's sort of quite a calm guy, but, um, you know, also you know, very from the sort of uh, economic and a sort of from a centre-right point of view, quite competent, but also quite quiet and, you know. Um, so I wondered what was it like sort of working with the Rahoy government, well, not working with, but documenting the Rahoy government at, at the time um, for you as a, as a correspondent, but also like when you were writing the book, how how was it um, documenting Rajoy's time in government and, and you know meeting the guy himself? Yes, I I mean the first thing that struck me about Rajoy was uh, that everyone in Madrid underestimated him. I mean I would listen to the Spanish radio shows in the morning while you know, driving my son to school and and and. I mean, I lost count of the number of times that he was basically described as a political zombie or dead man walking as this almost sort of pathetic political figure. And it was interesting that he had detractors not only on the left, but also very much on the right. I mean, there's uh, obviously that the PP has always had this sort of, um, uh, it's obviously a right-wing conservative party, but I mean, there's a very strong, really right-wing uh, branch of it. And they detested Rajoy almost as much as the as the left-wingers did. And, and I was just fascinated by his ability to survive, which is, you know, ultimately how political success to a very large degree is measured. And the fact that he survived and stayed in office and indeed won elections for years and years after, after the first appalling corruption scandals broke, I thought was testament to a real political talent. And I thought that his flaws, of which there were many, were always evident and, uh, and, and, and were always analyzed and scrutinized to the ninth degree. But I thought a little bit, not quite enough was made of his, of his strengths and frankly, also of his achievements. I do think that uh, the economic policies that his government put in place after he won the 2011 uh, general election you know, were ultimately successful. I mean, at that point, there was not really a painless way out of this crisis. There wasn't even a, a good way out of the crisis. But I think he took, um, he took fairly bold decisions and uh, saw them through. And indeed, before, before his own... I mean, before obviously he was ousted, and then before before the appalling Corona crisis, I mean, Spain had um, had turned the corner in an uh, quite quite impressively. In terms of the sort of how 
how we as journalists interacted with him. I mean, you, you will know this, but Spain pays quite a lot of attention to what the outside world thinks and says about Spain. Um, I think this is, on the whole, a very good trait. Um, it's, it's not an insular country in that, in that sense at all. But especially at the height of the economic crisis, um, the Spanish government, but also I think Spain in general, paid a lot of attention to what the economic and financial press were saying. So they, Moncloa in the Rajoy era was always quite keen to have a channel of communications. Um, you know, we, I, I did two interviews with him during my time in Spain and um, indeed the, the editor of the FT flew in to do those interviews with me and, and he devoted you know, quite, quite a bit of time uh, to those conversations. So, so um, we were obviously very keen to keep that channel of communications open and 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 uh, uh, but it was interesting that this was something they I think quite consciously also tried to do from from their side and and they were sort of consciously making an effort to communicate with financial markets and investors and the and the sort of global financial uh, world you know because one, one way to reach them is by talking to the FT so um so yeah I was um uh, you know, I, 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 you know, I mean, I also, I think I'm appropriately critical of some of the other elements of his, of his tenure. I think he mishandled the Catalan situation quite badly, and I also think that some of the social distress in Spain um, during the height of the crisis was also caused by his real inability to to show leadership and compassion at the height of the crisis. I mean, we all know he's, he's, he's not a great public speaker. And I think he also finds it quite hard to connect with, with people outside his, his close circle of friends. And so I thought this was something that was really missing at the height of the crisis when there was so much suffering and so much uncertainty. Someone who could sort of verbalize this um, the kind of terror of the moment, but also perhaps the hope that things will get better. And mm -hmm. I don't think he really made an effort to do that. And perhaps he was also not able to do this because um, you know, while, while he uh, was and is a man of talents, that, that, that clearly wasn't his talent, the ability to kind of speak and say, you know, as, as, as Bill Clinton so famously said, you know, I, I, I feel your pain. That was never something he could bring himself to say, and I, I thought, I thought that was a pity because, of course, at that point also the the king and the and the and the Casarial were were sort of out of the game due to their own scandals, and it, it just meant that Spaniards really hadn't anyone to kind of look towards to to provide this sort of. Mm, comfort, moral leadership, whatever you want to say in this, in this generational crisis. Mm. Yeah. And I suppose his, um, so I suppose Pedro Sanchez who, who came after him is sort of, I would probably say the polar opposite is, you know, is quite a warm and takes his leadership quite, um, seriously, but making big decisions, um, don't always seem to be 
his sort of forte, I suppose. With regards to Rajoy's reforms, I suppose one of the most controversial in the country uh, would be the, the the working reform or the labour reforms. Um, and you say that it was sort of they were they were necessary, but also in the book you talk about Rajoy's relationship with the EU um, and with regards to like how his economic advisors basically didn't want to be another, they didn't want to turn this into another Greece crisis. Um, do you think that pushed a lot of the reforms um, that Rajoy put in place? Or influenced <laughs> yeah. them anyway? I mean, they were, they were, I mean, this was a, this was a sentence you would hear on an almost daily basis. I mean, Spain is not Greece. Spain is not Greece. And, mm. um, and I think this is something that is in, that that was sort of impressive is that Spain's um, the ability to act and the ability to respond politically and economically to the crisis remained intact in Spain, and this was obviously a reflection of the very large majority that, that Rajoy had that basically allowed him to. Pretty much do whatever he wanted. Uh, I mean, there was, of course, furious protest and resistance on the streets, but uh, there wasn't really any way in Parliament to stop these reforms and measures, which were incredibly tough measures, especially on the budget deficit and in terms of the austerity measures that were put in place and that caused, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm under no illusion. I don't, I don't think Bajoy was under any illusion about that either. It just caused severe hardship in the mm. country. Um, uh, but he was he was able to do that, and I think that was a critical difference um, to other countries affected by the by the post two thousand eight two thousand nine crisis, is that um, he was able to formulate a set of policies, and you know I'm sure Spaniards are still arguing whether they were the right ones or not, but at, at least he was able to formulate a set of policies that were broadly coherent and that he was then able to implement and implement very rapidly. And I think, you know, there, there, there was a lot of, I mean, there, there was a alarming bit of time wasting in the first six months of his tenure, where I think he should have acted much more rapidly. But in the end, um, they did manage to save the banking system, clean mm. up the banking system, reform the labor market. Again, I mean, this, these were not, these were not pretty happy reforms. I mean, they were, they were tough. Mm. I think Spain's economic development after these reforms suggests that they broadly that they got more right than they got wrong. I think that's right. that's what, what I would say. And I think mm. certainly if you compare Spain's economic performance to Italy's since the height of the crisis. I think a lot of economists would say the key difference uh, was the was the sort of cleaning up of the banking system, which in Spain was sort of done in a almost textbook manner and um again it was incredibly difficult to sell this politically i mean why why inject um you know 60 billion or whatever it was euros into the banking system you know into the you know helping the organizations and the people who in part brought this mess upon spain in the first place and mm. you're leaving so many ordinary spaniards out in the cold but you know unfortunately it is a fact of economic life that you know, without a banking system, it's quite difficult to do anything. So it, it's, it's, um, I, I think those, 
those reforms were ultimately um, pretty well thought through. Mm. And I mean, the Pessoa before, it's worth mentioning that the Pessoa before, Zapatero before Rajoy also put, put austerity measures in, um, not not as deep as Rajoy, but um, but yeah, they did. And with regards to the to the labour reforms, I mean, that's quite a thing that's going on at the moment. I mean, the labour market in Spain is very odd. It's you know, it's filled with temporary contracts, um, and you know, it's quite expensive to employ people. It's also it also used to be quite expensive to to fire people, and that was one of the reforms that. Um, that, that he made. Um, I wondered what you thought about the Pessoa possible. Well, there's a big argument in the Pessoa at the moment uh, between between Podemos, the the Labour minister Yolanda Diaz, and um, and the sort of the economic deputy minister, which um, uh, Nadia Carvalho, and they're basically arguing about whether they're going to repeal these labour reforms. Um, do you think? repealing them would go down well in Europe? Um, and, and do you think Podemos have a chance of, of repealing these? Or do you think it's sort of going to be a big thing for the coalition at the moment? Um, unfortunately, it's a bit, I mean, I, I, I still follow Spanish politics uh, with, a, with a high degree of interest, but I'm, I'm obviously I've been, been out of the country for a while now. So I'm not sure I'm in a great place to comment on, on the kind of current debate around this. What I would say is that I think the, the, the challenge and the discussion has certainly moved on a little bit from, from 2012 mm. when, the, when, the, when the original you know, PP labor reform um, was pushed through. So, um, and I, I did sort of wonder at the end of my time in Spain whether the pendulum hadn't sort of swung a little bit too far and whether... Right. Indeed, uh, you know, and, and you know, this was of course also reflected by the fact that the peers, that the that the socialists did uh, uh, ultimately emerge triumphant. That that the time of of the sort of extreme retrenchment and austerity and so forth hadn't come to an end, and, and mm. it, it did make 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 sense to to, uh, to to put the accent more on re redistribution, which I think is what the Pesoy uh, Podemos government uh, mm. did into office. Uh, but I, I'm I'm feeling a, a slightly um, uh, uncomfortable talking about these things because no, no, I'm, no I'm worries. Just, yeah. yeah, it's just um, no, it's an interesting debate that uh, that seems to stem back like more than ten governments labour reform in Spain. Um, Moving on, um, one thing that you also cover quite heavily in your book is Catalonia. Um, one thing that isn't really covered, well, isn't covered some, so heavily in the version that I read, I'm, I'm aware that there's been a sort of second edition come out since then uh, with a different prologue and things, uh, is Vox. So my question is a bit of a double one. Uh, what was it like covering Catalonia? Because I suppose most people that live in Spain or have even uh, heard of the Catalan crisis, which, which most people that probably listen to this podcast know that Catalan politics are, it's like another country's politics within a country, which I'm sure most Catalans would see it that way. Um, so how was it getting to grips with that? Um, and did you sort of expect 
did you expect or did did anyone in the foreign correspondence sort of uh, areas that you people that you were talking to expect the the backlash of uh, Spanish nationalism and Vox that came after the Catalan crisis? Mm, yeah, that, that, I mean, I, I think you, you put that very well because I, I do see like a sort of, this is sort of part of the, I, I guess the thesis of my book is that all these things are, are connected, is that the crisis helped stoke Catalan nationalism and helped spark the Catalan crisis. It's not the only reason, but I think it is certainly a very important factor. Mm. And then the Catalan crisis, um, triggered this backlash, as you as you rightly say, in the rest of Spain, and led to, to this sort of long dormant um, phenomenon of Spanish nationalism, or I should say overt Spanish nationalism, the sort of waving of a flag that we've seen um, uh, so much over the past few years. Um, so indeed, I, I think all these things are, are, are connected. I mean, the, the Catalan crisis occupies the two first chapters of my book because I do think that ultimately this was, um, you know, notwithstanding all the other interesting stuff that happened from Podemos to the crisis, etc., was probably the defining political challenge of this era. Um, and also, I was fascinated by it because it had so much resonance in other countries around the world. Obviously, at around about the same time that. Catalan um, separatism got this massive boost. Um, we had pretty much, uh, you know, we had a very similar phenomenon in the UK with the Scottish independence referendum. Um, but also, I thought some of the some of the populist trends that you see around the world were also to some degree mirrored. Um, in the in the Catalan uh, independence movement, um, this idea that somehow breaking away, uh, retreating into a smaller, more pure entity, um, is a is a is an appropriate response to political and economic challenges. Um, I mean, I know there's many many different uh, factors that animate Catalan nationalism, but I, I certainly felt that a, a big reason why this exploded to such a degree in, in sort of 2011 and beyond was the fact that, um, was the crisis and was the fact that, as a, not just the economic crisis, but also the, the corruption crisis, the crisis of Spanish institutions, the crisis of Spain's sort of post-Franco political and social order, and, and that it just seemed evidently to many Catalans um, the best, if not the only response to solving these, these problems was to, was to break away and form, and form a separate country. Mm. Um, again, this is, um, yeah, it, 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 was, it, was, it was endlessly fascinating. I mean, I, 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 you know, it's, 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 it's great being <laughs> a foreign correspondent. In, in, but one of the best things about it is that you just have these sort of, well, I certainly try to be in Barcelona as, as often as possible, and uh, you know, which is which is not exactly a, a hardship uh, trip. Um, so I, I really enjoyed going to Barcelona, spending a few days talking to independence leaders. Um, again, it was quite easy for us to to make contact, to stay in touch, to get interviews, because again, I think in Barcelona in particular, 
the independence movement, independence leaders saw international public opinion as a as a key tool, if not the key tool, in their in their in their arsenal, and um, and it was just um, it was just fascinating. Uh, it it was a it was a I mean I I certainly went back and forward at the time in 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 in, in my thinking on how extreme the clash would would get. Mm. Uh, but I I didn't really expect it to erupt in the way that it did um, uh, on the day and then in the aftermath of the of the referendum. And I, I think indeed, I mean, I um, write about some of the interviews with political leaders like Junqueras I did who then you know, all mm. of a sudden a few weeks after my interview found himself in jail. And mm. um, this is not something that you expect when you cover Western European politics. No. Sort of <laughs> elected CTF politicians, you know, uh, you know, the next time you see them is on television when they're sort of um, arrested and 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 uh, thrown in jail. So so um, it, it was just an extraordinary time, and again, a sort of very rich and dense and multifaceted story in which. Um, I, I also thought in, in which the foreign press, I think, played quite a useful role because I don't think there were that many reporters in Spain who traveled back and forth between Barcelona and Madrid in the way that my colleagues and I did on a very regular basis. And I thought there was a lot of um, unwillingness and unreadiness to see what the other side thinks and what them and what motivates them and I, I'm not talking specifically about the media now but about just you know Madrid versus Barcelona or mm. Spain uh, Catalonia I, I thought this kind of this it, it's always helpful to at least make an honest attempt to understand what your political opponent what the other side what your adversary is, is thinking and I thought actually um, without wanting to um, toot the horn of the foreign correspondence too much here, but I, I genuinely thought you you um, learned quite a lot from, from the dispatches that uh, that foreign correspondents who were covering both sides of this uh, clash um, were writing. Yeah, I, I think that I think that is reflected in your book as well. That, that you've gone on, you've made an effort to go both sides of the argument, which. As as someone that was living in Madrid at the time of it all happening, I can definitely say that on the Spanish media, it was there was no no effort whatsoever to to try and understand, you know, the other side of the argument. Um, I mean, even in the UK with Brexit, there's been media attempts to try and understand why people voted leave or why people voted remain, but in in, uh, in during the time of the Catalan referendum, it was just very one-sided this is spain and then in catalonia i'd imagine it was probably the same so yeah, yeah. And, and i find that i mean this is i, I think as, as becomes clear from um from, from our conversation but also i hope from everyone who's who's, who's uh, read the book is that i i really love spain i mean it's i feel very um attached to the country but but the but but the polarization is something that really drives you slightly nuts is is this this sort of uh this them and us um, cleavage that you get, uh, whether it's a left-right 
cleavage, you know, um, center periphery, um, even within Catalonia, the, the kind of gulf between the pro-independence movement and anti-independence movement and, and, the, and the sort of very divisive rhetoric that is employed uh, in, 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 in the Spanish political discourse, I, I find is a, is, a, is a great shame. And my last question to you was, uh, uh, it, the, I think it's at the start of the book, you talk about, you know, walking past the, um, the unemployment offices and it being, you know, 2012 being a very dark Christmas. How was it for you writing the book? And, and what, what, what inspired you to write this book? Like, why, why have you written about, like, Madrid and Spain rather than any of your other... Um, places that you've been a foreign correspondent. How was it writing the book about Spain and, and during this really dark time? Well, I mean, I always wanted to write a book. I, I think it's a sort of natural progression when you're a journalist, you start out writing these sort of short news stories and then you uh, graduate and you start writing longer pieces. And then I started really enjoying writing magazine pieces in my previous, in my posting before Madrid when I was in Jerusalem. And so you, you sort of, you, you wonder, hmm, well, you know, what, what, what can I do with 5,000 words? What, they, what can I do with 10,000 words? And then, you know, ultimately the, you know, you sort of approach this challenge of writing 80,000 words. And technically speaking, it's not so difficult for, I think, for, for journalists with a bit of experience, because, I mean, we, we are sort of trained to write a lot of copy quite quickly. So... Mm. I, I felt it went sort of quite smoothly. Um, the the motivation to write about Spain, I think, was um, was primarily that I thought it was an extraordinary period of history that I had witnessed. Um, perhaps not, you know, as dramatic as the transition, or let alone the civil war, or um, anything like that. All, of course, but it, it, it was a it was a very interesting and um, tumultuous five years that I lived in Spain and and and, and that I covered, and I, I did think that there's, you know, people will write books about this sooner or later, but very few of them will have actually have will will have dozens and dozens and dozens of notebooks filled with quotes, you know, mm -hmm. from from the prime minister of Spain right down to, you know, some unemployed youth in Cadiz or Sevilla. And, and I thought I should make the most of that because I thought this is kind of, you know, what, what, what I have in my notebook for, for, <laughs> for, for people who are interested in Spain is, is actually quite, quite relevant. And, and that there's, there's, it, it, it would be, you know, I'm sure that political scientists will offer far more, refined and nuanced political analysis of this post-crisis period. But what they won't have is the sort of the, the color and the smell and the sound and the texture of what it was like to live in Spain at the time. And they won't have all these, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, for me at least, interesting encounters with ordinary Spaniards, um, activists, politicians, business leaders, but also, you know, as I said, um, young unemployed people, you know, barmen in the Basque country, fishermen in Galicia, etc. And 
So I thought it would be almost a bit of a pity to waste all that uh, and uh, to, to, to let all that material go to waste. So that's why I did it. But uh, it, it, it turned out, of course, to be a lot more work than I'd expected. And then also Spain between 2017 and 2020 had the unfortunate habit of um, changing sort of directions on a, on, a, on, a very, on a very regular basis. So I was constantly trying to catch up and update, um, be it on the removal of Franco's body from the um, Valley of the Fallen to the rise of Vox to all sorts of other strange things that, uh, frankly, I, I would have struggled to predict, such as a coalition between the PSOE and uh, Podemos, which you know certainly in 2014 looked completely out of the question. So, um, so yeah, no, it's been it's been a it's been it's been quite a on the whole quite a satisfying experience, I have to say, writing a book. Yeah, and I think that generally comes across. And I think as well another part of the dimension that you've just mentioned is a book that I haven't really asked you about, but uh, it's worth pointing out that it's one of the the, the major parts of the book is your description of the the sort of the lost generation or you know that generation that were basically you know either moved abroad or, or moved back with their parents that sort of time of unemployment and things um, with the collapse of the whole construction industry um, and all the affiliated um, knock-on effects that I had as well um, and it was one of my it's one of the sadder parts of the book, but it's also one of the most telling for for people that um, that are moving here or people that you know have lived here or, or weren't here at the time. Uh, it's certainly um, an enlightening part of the book, and and I think it's caused a bit of trauma in the country as well. Um, recently, that you know they've started mentioning um, economic structural changes to uh to spain and people's alarm bells start ringing uh, austerity austerity and um people have said no 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 it's not austerity but um yeah so it's certainly a time as you said like an interesting in, an important time uh for people that were living in the country at the time mm. no i was uh, just about to say that um uh yeah it, it, it's i think it's hard to get to get your head around how much of a shock uh, the crisis was, because Spain had seen so many decades of at least economic, well, no, of, of economic and social progress, and and I think even more so than in other countries, the idea that you know, every generation will live better than the generation of their parents, mm. sort of taken for for granted, and and that was the experience indeed over many many decades, and so suddenly to have this generation of young Spaniards who, in terms of their educational attainment, uh, were you know, by far the best prepared that Spain has, has, has ever had. And, and just the, the complete inability to find jobs for this, for this generation. And the, yeah, it's, it, it was devastating. It was devastating. Uh, thank you for joining me, Tobias. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And Merry Christmas from everyone here. Well, it's only me and my dog, really. Uh, from us at the Sorbonne Mesa podcast. Don't worry, there is another episode of the Sorbonne Mesa podcast to come before the end of the year. 
Um, this one is going to be about Brexit. Now, normally I don't cover other countries' politics, but uh, this podcast will contain two or three interviews with people regarding the relationship between Spain and Britain after, uh, well, in a post-Brexit world. So I hope you'll come back next week for that. Regarding the new year, 2021, the Sobre Mesa podcast will be back, hoping it's a bit more of a normal year. We will be covering, for the first two months of the year, we'll be covering um, a mix of things. It's quite political, territorial politics. Uh, I've got some specialist guests on regarding the Basque Country, Catalonia, and territorial politics overall. I also have uh, interviews regarding municipalism and the rise of Vox. Um and we will also be talking about the possibility of a third Spanish Republic. And later on in the year, um, the Sobre Mesa podcast will be looking at certain political movements, but societal movements a bit more in depth as well, regarding things like feminism um, and ecology. I want to look at how Spain is tackling the problems in the 21st century. Um, and I'll also try and bring you a little bit more culture uh, regarding films, books, uh, and so forth. And speaking of books and the new year, uh, I have been invited to an event by Madrid Bookie. It's their first life writing class of 2021. It's with the Oxford University tutor, Susanna Rickards. Um, and she will be sharing her top writing tips at this event. Uh, the event is held by Madrid Bookie. Madrid Bookie is a, a literature-based, literary um, community based in Madrid, you can tell from the name. And before the coronavirus, they were putting on events with authors, journalists and other people in, in this community. Uh, I was never able to go because it was always uh, while I was working. But now that they've moved it online, um, I will be able to go to this one. So I'm really looking forward to it. I was writing a lot before podcasting, but as you can tell, podcasting takes up quite a lot of time. Um, but it'll be good to get back putting pen to paper, I suppose is the expression. So if you want to come along to this um, this class or this workshop, this event, then take a look at Madrid Bookie on Facebook, or you can also find the tickets on Eventbrite. It's on the 16th of January. I hope I'll see you there. And I really need to get back into it. I am writing a short book at the moment. Um, regarding the Spanish Third Republic or the possibility of one or how it might come about and what it might look like. Uh, and I am planning to try and get that published so that I can put a bit more money towards this podcast. Um, you know, microphones, paying for hosting and things like that, it isn't cheap. I don't want to do a Patreon because that sort of ties you to producing regular content. And, I, and I'm moving my shift in this podcast to trying to provide more quality content rather than weekly content. Um, so I do hope you enjoy this podcast. And please, just on a final note, 
please leave us a review on Apple if you listen to it on Apple. If you don't listen to it on Apple but you have an Apple product, uh, start listening to it on Apple and give us a give us a review on that. Um, that would be great. And and as always, share it with your with your friends and family. Uh, give us a tweet as well. Make sure you follow us on Twitter. It's at Sobrecast on Twitter. And I'm going to leave it there. So I hope you have a really Merry Christmas. Um, and don't forget to listen to some of our previous episodes. Most of them are timeless. You can listen to them at any time. Um, we have some great ones on historical memory, uh, the, the independence movement of Catalonia regarding Daida, uh, also the national identity of Spain. Um, and one of my favourite ones was uh, last week's episode on the history of anarchism uh, in Spain. It's um, split over two episodes so that you can listen to it comfortably um, without having to try and find a point. But I would hugely recommend listening to that episode. And I'd like to thank you all as well for your uh, support, your nice messages uh, saying how much you like the podcast. Uh, it all really means a lot to me during... To be what on to be honest, what has become uh, kind of very dark times uh, in what should be a nice time Christmas, but uh, certainly bringing bringing you this podcast makes a huge difference. So, Merry Christmas, seasons greetings, happy holidays, and goodbye. <laughs>